Money management. This is Mike Mayo with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group, and it's Saturday at nine. So we're talking with you about the markets and the economy and how those things may work together to influence your investment decisions. So uh, let's see how we can do this. Uh, we'll start with the data dump from yesterday. How everything closed. Markets were broadly higher yesterday. The Dow ended at 35,295. That was a gain of 382 points. The S&P ended the week at 4471. The Nasdaq at 14,897. The Russell 2000 at 2275. We had uh, gold at 1794 an ounce, silver at 2345 an ounce. Crude ended up uh, for the eighth week in a row. It was last bid at 82.28 a barrel. Ten-year Treasury at 1.57% and soft white wheat at 10.45 a bushel. I'm going to give you a few just miscellaneous bits uh, that came out this week before we get into the heavy lifting. Um, just so you're uh, aware of how these things are trending, we lost, we had a loss in September, that is to say the S&P, was down in the month 4.8%. However, it's now up just, what, a couple weeks into it, uh, about 3.6% and is only 1.6% uh, from its all-time record. So, doing well. And this past week had a bit of an anniversary on the 12th, which would have been Tuesday, I believe. The 12th of October uh, in 1990, the great bull market of the 90s began. It, cl <laughs> it closed up a whole 9.9 points. Now, remember, back in the day, that was an okay move. Anyhow, it was 9.9 .9 points higher. It closed that day at 2407. That was the Dow. And just for reference, again, the Dow yesterday was 35,295. But in any regard, it closed at 2407. And over the next 10 years, the stocks went up four times. So... That wasn't a bad bit of business. And oh, by the way, I'm sure everyone's heard, but just to be sure, uh, folks who get Social Security benefits we are going to see a 5.9% increase uh, in uh, their benefits and the SSI payments in 2022. They're based on the cost of living, particularly what's called the uh, CPIW, the Workers' Consumer Price Index. And that typically rises when inflation increases, which is why you get a higher uh, cost of living adjustment. On average, according to the Social Security, um, this increase will add about $92 to the average monthly benefit, uh, bringing that to $16.57. That is uh, the average monthly benefit from Social Security around the country. Now, that, is, that jump, that 6%, is the largest since 1982. So that gives you a clue, um, just to kind of put this inflation stuff into context, we haven't had it to deal with much uh, in these last so many years. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's getting all the attention that it is, because it's been out of sight, out of mind for so long. But we'll talk in more detail about inflation later in the program. And as far as the earnings are concerned, which have been pretty stellar in the early going, 83% of the S&P 500 that have re their third quarter numbers, well, they've beaten uh, the earnings expectations, this according to Earnings Scout. 
and it said uh, taking into account these results this also from the earnings scope taking into account these results and estimates for those yet to report third quarter profit growth uh, is estimated 25 percent not bad uh, as I mentioned I want to uh, touch a bit on the energy situation the nas national average price for gasoline uh, went up seven cents the last week alone it's now at 327 a gallon that's according to AAA now you can drive up to your friendly gas pump and uh, certainly in um, eastern Washington you're not going to see too much 327 you may thank Olympia for the difference above that uh, again Washington being one of the highest tax states in the country as far as gasoline is concerned but the average is 327 and it's continuing to go up as I mentioned uh, oil up uh, for the eighth week in a row now now this, here's kind of mixed messages you know um, the White House the current administration confirmed this past week that they are now speaking with oil and gas producers in in the US about reducing rising energy prices now this is just after there was all this haldy roll about uh, suspending drilling in Alaska. I, I said it before, I'll say it again, and it's just, just is what it is. These folks do not grasp economics. I'm sorry, it just isn't that way. Because when you shut in the wells and then the demand goes up, there's going to be a lag. And that's why one of the, one of the reasons the prices are up. Now, um, Mark Hayfley, he's from UBS Global Wealth Management. He said that the surge in energy prices will slow growth, but not sufficient to cause a recession. I think that's pretty dang accurate. Energy prices, he goes on, are likely to stabilize or moderate through next year, unquote. Now, we've seen the prices for oil and gas, natural gas, uh, going up a lot as concern is growing regarding potentially limited immediate sources of energy ahead of the winter. Well, uh, we've got crude prices again at about a seven-year high right now. Uh, it's around, as I said, say around $80 a barrel. Let's see, what was it like? $82.28 is where it closed yesterday. It's That's double in the last year. And natural gas prices have posted a similar gain in just six months. Now trading above $5 per million British thermal units. That's how you trade uh, natural gas. Now a lot of that, well maybe that's not true, that's just me talking, but a bunch of it is due to bad decisions by governments about shutting off alternate energy sources and then all of a sudden saying, hey, those alternate energy sources aren't getting it done. We have to go back and even, oh, watch out, get coal to provide energy as well as uh, more demand for oil and natural gas. So that's also helping move prices higher. The U.S. Energy Information Administration, the EIA as it's known, released its winter fuels outlook, and they project that nearly half of the U.S. households who use uh, natural gas to heat are going to see at about an average of 30% higher costs this winter. They say the Midwest will see the largest protected in projected increase with prices there about 45% higher than last year. 
you know, fossil fuels, that's oil and derivatives, they account for about 80% of our energy consumption. Now, this despite growth in alternate energy, alternative energy, uh, demand for energy, excuse me, for oil, the main source of energy for transportation, that's expected to keep rising in the years ahead. Global oil demand expected to climb every year through 2026, going up to 104 million barrels a day that year. That would be up 4% from 2019 levels. And again, this according to the International Energy Agency. Now, something, you know, that's interesting. There's all this stuff about alternative energy and, you know, we got to swap uh, wind and solar and all that stuff for uh, oil. Well, the, the numbers are, and, and, and I think one of our best clients for having sent me in this uh, research piece, after billions in subsidies and multiple years of operation, there's still only less than 3% of global energy needs are from renewables, are being filled from renewables. They just, they're not efficient enough to provide um, <laughs> the power demands. And, and, and again, in this report, it shows that it would take 500 years to make enough electric car batteries. I'm not talking about the little 12-volt deals, but the big ones that drive the whole car. It would take 500 years to make enough of that type battery to store enough electricity for one day's electric use in the U.S. It's going to be a while before you see much real-life uh, intrusion into the energy demand uh, from oil. You know, I've said it before, I'm not the one ranger, but the U.S. economy cannot be switched off and on like a dang light bulb. The lockdowns have and will continue to cause more problems than the virus itself. Because the virus is going down, but the, uh, how would I say, ongoing effects of the lockdown are still very much in place. You know, the more the government, I would suggest any government, attempts to fix supply chains, the worse the problem becomes. The government broke them by breaking the market. You know, only the market can fix them. If you raise tax rates and increase spending and more regulation, sorry, all of that hurts supply chains. You know, a key consideration I think that gets lost in most of the supply chain coverage, it doesn't affect everybody the same. It's not a one-size-fits-all by any stretch. For example, software and digital services, they're pretty insulated. So are growth stocks in general because they have bigger gross profit margins than the market as a whole. So they can handle cost pressures a lot more easily than some of these, uh, how would I say, what they call value companies operating uh, more on a shoestring. In our view, far from being a market-wide negative, supply chain, excuse me, supply chain issues are likely to have helped growth stocks big out performance since May. Now, demand for goods has shown staying power. In the second quarter of this year, consumer spending on goods was 18% higher than the fourth quarter of 2019, which was before the bug showed up, and after adjusting for inflation. However, consumer spending on services was 3.4% lower, which kind of makes sense. Now, consumer spending has gone past pre-pandemic levels. 
and appears to be continuing into the holidays. As a result of that, retail sales also continue to show strength in September. We just got those data yesterday. It surprised the consensus it rose more than expected. Sales grains were brought 11 of the 13 categories up in September. Those were led by general merchandise, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, going back to school kinds of things, and at gas stations. Overall sales are up by almost 14% from a year ago. Another way to look at that is that sales are up 18.9% versus February 2020, which was right before the bug showed up. So you can see that people aren't exactly sitting on their money. The spending is up. It's going across the board. It's not in any one area. And so that is broad-based and is helpful to the overall economy. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, rising wages, jobs, and inflation, they'll all be tailwinds for retail sales going into the next couple of years. After the, uh, well, well, the, how would I say, diminishing of the temporary and artificial boosts from those uh, quote-unquote stimulus checks, along with the end to overly aggressive, excuse me, excessive jobless benefits will be headwinds. Right now, third quarter real GDP growth looks like it's coming in a little soft, going to be coming in at about a 2% annual rate, maybe below. And that report is going to arrive just before, well, not just before, a few days before the next Fed announcement. And we expect faster job growth and real GDP growth into the fourth quarter. As a result, uh, Mr. Powell of the Fed is likely going to follow through on his intention to start tapering in November. And please keep in mind that, as has happened in the past many times, economic reports have become a political football. Each side is trying to use the data to score points for their side, greasing the wheel of politics to try and get their policy or elections moving in their preferred direction. Now, what's important for you is to keep your focus on the data and underlying economic forces, in other words, the facts, and not the narrative driven by politics. Also, this past week, we had our usual bevy of uh, predictions and outlooks from different pundits and market strategists around the system. So let's see what those folks had to say. Analysts uh, as a whole are estimating earnings growth of 27.6% for the S&P in the third quarter. That would be the third highest growth rate since 2010. But again, given what how the third quarter was, uh, that may come in somewhat lower. And be expected, you're going to see somewhat lower earnings going forward just because they're going to be hard to compare uh, against such great numbers that we've had in the most recent past. J.P. Morgan and Goldman uh, had some bullish market calls. They're adding to an increasing number of folks saying that the current spike in consumer prices, largely fueled by the jump in energy costs, is going to be temporary. Marco Kalanovic, uh, he's chief market global strategist at J.P. Morgan. He is saying, we finally got some weakness after 330 days of no greater than a 5% pullback but we don't expect it to last and advise to buy on the dip. Adjusting for inflation, consumer balance sheets, total oil expenditures, wage and prices of other assets, that includes housing and stocks and stuff, 
And with oil at 130 or even 150, and again, it's 80 now, stock markets and the economy could function well with some balancing, rebalancing and capital rotations. Again, that's from uh, JP Morgan. In fact, all the major asset classes, bonds, stocks, real estate, have increased about 50% or more, while crude oil has declined 25% over the last decade. Therefore, oil is, by all cross-asset comparisons, still cheap today. And I would add, from my own perspective, that again, this um, <laughs> switch to uh, renewable energy is not going to be happening overnight. Uh, and uh, so I think having a position in those type issues, high quality all the time, uh, is definitely uh, an advantage because you have total return, dividends plus growth. Now, they, um, again, this is uh, J.P. Morgan. Uh, we believe the recent pullback is an opportunity to buy the dip in cyclical assets, which would include all stocks, even emerging and developed markets, apart from the high multiple growth sectors. And they say that's because intensifying energy issues, rising inflation, and bond yields still extreme overweights in growth in tech stocks and underweights in value in cyclical stocks. J.P. Morgan's highest conviction sector remains energy, materials, industrials, and financials. The folks at Goldman say, and I'm quoting, we believe this dip will provide a good buying opportunity as 5% pullbacks usually have in the past. And uh, kind of stepping up to the plate here, he says, I should never do this, but I'll make a forecast. That's J.P. Morgan uh, Chase CEO Jamie Dimon. And he's a Pretty smart cookie. Yeah, he said, uh, this will not be an issue next year at all. This is the worst part of it. I think great market systems will adjust for it like companies have. He said he believes the economy is set up for growth over the next few years. Part of that is because of the strength of the consumer. He said, keep in mind, again, this goes to the retail sales. Keep in mind that consumers buying other stuff. They can't buy cars. They're buying home improvement. They can't travel internationally. They travel domestically. The spend level is very high, and for a company like them who tracks uh, credit card usage, I think that's a pretty good insight. And because of the strength of the consumer, which he says is extraordinary, they're spending 20% more than they were spending before the bug showed up. And companies are in great shape. They can continue to spend at these levels for a long time. You know, as I said in uh, an earlier segment today, the... Um, this focus, over-concentration, if you will, in my opinion, on inflation, I think it's because, again, it hasn't been an issue for such a long time. And uh, the financial media, as we've talked many times, you know, they get one idea in their grip and they just work it to death. And uh, they're doing a pretty good job of that with this particular topic, I think. And I believe that, uh, you know, one of the things they're telling, oh, higher inflation, oh, jeepers, you know, the world is ending, any penny, sky is falling, real good. Well, no. You know, I think one of the things is it just seems high because it hasn't been around for such a long time. Now, these supply chain issues do continue to have upward pressure on prices and no end in sight. But again, as we've talked, 
uh, not everybody is hit to the same extent by supply chain problems. And while the congestion at the ports on both coasts gets the news coverage, each step in the distribution process, you know, that goes from the drivers to move the loads out of the ports, the trains available to move them across the country. Oh, by the way, the cans themselves, that is to say the 40-foot containers, and the staff available to unload, well, there and you're having some challenges because they have issues getting folks to do all that kind of stuff. Now, David Costin uh, from Goldman said, and I'm quoting, despite near-term uncertainty, we, Goldman, expect the stock market uh, will continue to rally as investors gain confidence that the current price of inflation is transitory, unquote. But, you know, inflation is looking a little less transitory with each passing month. And that isn't a reason to go open a vein. It's just that it's more of a factor and it's going to be hard to, uh, how would I say, not pay attention to it in the future. Consumer prices moved up in September faster than what was expected and up 5.4%. Now, that's the largest yearly increase since 2008. Uh, well, okay, one thing at a time before I start throwing in oh by the ways and really confuse everybody. In some cases, that jump was only because of a price crash that occurred in the pandemic's early stages in early 2020. You know, prices for lodging at hotels, for example, were up 19.8% for the year. But when you go back two years, the prices are only up 1.9%. So, <laughs> you know, it's all relative. What points in time are you using for reference? Now, consumer prices are up at a 3.7% rate since February 2020, which again was pre-virus. The volatile energy and food categories, which led prices higher in September, uh, were up 1.3 and 0.9% for the month. Now, as another consideration, Food prices also showed notable gains for the month. Food at home, as they call it, was up 1.2%. Meat prices up 3.3% just in September. They're up 126 year over year. No surprise to anybody who's been uh, at a grocery store in the recent past. Bob Dow, uh, Chief Investment Officer at Crossmark Global, says, food and energy are more variable. That's in terms of their prices and costs. He said, but that's where the problem is. Hopefully, he says, we start solving our supply shortage problem, but when the dust settles, inflation is not going back to zero to 2% where it was for the last decade. And I think that's something to consider. We aren't going to be going back to as low as it was, but having some inflation is not a bad thing. That means the economy is growing. Uh, across the board. It's when it gets high and out of control that things are, shall we say, shaky. Now, price pressure, excuse me, price pressures further back in the pipeline are even more severe. The 12-month rise in producer prices, the manufacturing end of uh, inflation, they hit their highest level since 1981. They were up a half percent in September, up 8.6 percent year over year. You know, for years after uh, the 
challenge. The question for many was whether the Fed could induce even 2% inflation. <laughs> and now, those same people are having increasing skepticism that the Fed's transitory inflation will get back down anywhere near 2% in the foreseeable future. Well, you just can't have it all the ways you want it, I guess. But please consider this. The shutdowns of 2020 dump sand in the gears of our intricate free market system that basically intertwines businesses in a near amazing chain of connections that brings components from all around the world together to produce products as simple as a pencil, as complex as pocket computers. And, and, and while producers were crippled, demand has been boosted by an M2 money supply that's 34% above the pre-bug levels, leaving both consumers and corporate pockets full of cash. Now, what is M2 money supply? Well, M1 money supply is what they call liquid money. Cash, checking accounts, demand deposits, traveler's checks, that stuff. M2 money supply is all of that, plus savings accounts, time deposits, CDs, and money market funds. So in essence, M2 money supply is all the money floating around out there. And we've got a 34% jump in the money that is in the system. And, yeah, I believe that while supply chain issues will ultimately prove temporary if the market is left alone to find its own solutions without the government intervention, the huge increase in the money supply is actually what would drive inflation over the long time because the Fed is still flooding the money with the same level of dollars today as it was when the whole economy was shut down last year. And in spite of inflation currently running well above their 2% target, we don't expect the Fed to signal any change in plans to keep short-term rates near zero for the foreseeable future. They'll likely begin to pare back their asset purchases following their meeting in early November. But I don't think they're going to get the accompanying uh, taper tantrum that we saw back in 2013 in the markets. You know, what matters most for the economy and the markets is when the Fed lifts the Fed funds rate. Now, the Fed funds, here's another definition for you. This is the interest rate that banks charge each other uh, to borrow or lend excess reserves overnight. So that one is, uh, you know, it's not really known to most folks, but it is an important consideration because of where, where it's used. Now, uh, let's see. I think the labor market has to heal considerably further to get the Fed to con seriously consider liftoff. Now, we've got really two kinds of inflation, okay? You got the sticky and you got your flexible. Sticky inflation, which is currently around 2.6% annualized, tends to have longer staying power. Those kinds of categories include rent, owner's equivalent rent, that's if you own a house, insurance costs, medical expenses. They don't flip and flop all that much, but when they move, they tend not to drop back down again in uh, any, well, they tend not to drop back down again. And uh, flexible inflation has climbed to nearly 14%. That's the highest since the 70s. This level of inflation likely won't last. 
because this includes products such as food, energy, and cars, where prices can move all over the place in a relatively short period of time. And remember, that's just recently happened with lumber, copper, and soybeans. Prices for those products skyrocketed in the spring and has since come down to some extent. And as anyone who's tried to buy a used car knows, flexible inflation categories have spiked because of these virus-related uh, shortages, the lack of available labor, and again, the supply chain issues. These flexible in inflation categories have spiked due to virus-related shortages, the lack of available labor, and supply chain disruptions. Uh, Richie Towson, he's a principal investment officer at American Funds, he said a quick resolution to these challenges is unlikely, but more normal conditions should return mid to late 2022. And I'm quoting, Richie says, what that means is the upside risk is in the sticky components. The sticky components will drive inflation in 2022, so that's what investors need to keep an eye on. And again, those sticky guys, rent, insurance, medical expenses, those kinds of things. And before you start making portfolio adjustments you know, about inflation, it's important, it's very important, as a matter of fact, to remember that sustained periods of inflation, elevated inflation, are quite rare here here the US. People of a certain age, those moving closer to maturity, I think, will remember the ultra-high inflation of the 70s and early 80s, but in hindsight it was clear that that was a unique period. In fact, deflationary pressures have also often been more difficult to tame as we saw in the Depression and to a lesser extent in Japan's situation. Over the past hundred years, inflation in our country <clears throat> excuse me, has stayed below 5% the vast majority of the time. Most recently, in the aftermath of the 2007-09 crisis, inflation struggled to hit 2% <laughs> at all. And that's despite unprecedented stimulated, uh, stimulus measures that were engineered by the Fed in an attempt to get to that 2% goal. Another important point, it's mostly at the extremes. When inflation is 6% or above, that financial assets actually tend to struggle. So stocks have come under some pressure when inflation goes negative, as one would expect. For investors, remember, some inflation is a good thing. Even uh, during times of higher inflation, stocks and bonds have generally provided solid returns. Now let me divert to a chart I'll hold it in front of the microphone so you can all see it. There you go. Anyway, what it shows is the uh, different rates of return between stocks and bonds at different inflation rates going over 50 years, from 1970 to 2020. So that covers all a period of really high interest rates and really low rates, so it's kind of a good example, I believe. And just for, uh, for example... If inflation is running between 2 and 3%, and this is annually, uh, stocks in, again, 1970 to 2020, have provided a 14% return, bonds a 4.2% return. When inflation goes 3 to 4%, stocks 10.8, bonds 6.6. .6. And when inflation runs from 4 to 6%, stocks at 11.7, 
bonds at 6.9. At 6% or above, both stocks and bonds go negative, as in negative 4%, and below zero, stocks are down 6.5, while bonds are up, because they do well in deflationary periods. So, you know, just the fact that we have inflation is no reason to uh, bail, as we say. It's no reason for you to head for the hills because just because of higher prices. Because higher prices also benefit shareholders because they use those higher prices as uh, increased income. Now, if you've listened to my program more than a few times, you know that I'm not a big gold fan. And lately, of course, you're starting to get with inflation. You know, the whole thing about gold is an inflation hedge, all that baloney. Well, let me just give you a short bit on that. Even though the price of gold is 50, five zero times as high as it was in 1971, stocks have performed even better. The S&P has produced an annualized return of 11.2% since August 1971. That's with reinvested dividends. And 8.2% for gold. And the only reason gold came even this close to matching stocks over the past 50 years was its huge return in the first decade following uh, the uh, release of the price structures, price constraints on gold. It, it used to just be $35 an ounce no matter what. Now, if you take away that decade, gold has lagged further behind even on intermediate term treasuries. Over the past 40 years, gold up 3.6% compared with 12.2% for the S&P, 8.2% for the Treasuries. Moral of this story, don't buy gold for an inflation hedge. It doesn't, it doesn't hedge anything. It just trades like regular stuff. So, a few concluding remarks here. You know, markets are up about three quarters of the time, and when they're up, Positive results far outweigh whatever drops there had been. You can look it up. I mean, I'm not making this stuff up. You just have to stay invested to get those results. Ben Graham, Mr. Buffett's uh, mentor, famously observed that stocks behave like vo voting machines in the near term. In other words, they're registering people's feelings. But notwithstanding the short-term effects, the overall trend remains bullish. Stocks don't have a one-to-one -one relationship with any economic statistic. Remember, stocks are leaders. Economic statistics are late. They're after-the-fact reports in most cases. They, stocks don't need growth to be fast or even particularly good. Just okay and not so bad are okay uh, if expectations are low enough. That's because stocks don't move on the absolute reality, but the gap between reality and expectations. In other words, if the results are better than, you're going to see a price increase. If the results are worse than, regardless of what they are, you'll probably see a price, uh, a share price drop. You know, what will drive stock prices over the foreseeable future is how the economic reality squares with expectations. If things do go exactly as some people fear, it likely won't be a huge deal to stocks because they've already priced in that reality. The market is aware of all the news that's out there, all the thoughts and images that are out there. If things even go a little bit better, that could generate a positive survey. Now, sentiment surveys 
they're not predictive. All they do is tell you what people feel today, and that's simply a product of what they're hearing and reading. Folks who have been hearing endlessly that supply chain snarls are tying up the global economy are going to tell survey takers they expect bottlenecks to be a big economic risk. I hope you see that that's not true in all cases. Surveys re both reflect and amplify headline sentiment, so you get a negative feedback loop going on. Meanwhile, while what's getting much less attention are the stories about companies who charter their own ships and planes. They're finding ways to transport goods across the sea without traditional containers and cutting non-essential costs to preserve their profits without raising prices. Incremental workarounds are often the seeds for incremental positive surprises. Please do remember, markets move on probabilities, not possibilities, and shortages of components and raw materials have already prompted suppliers to ramp up. That suggests that this issue should resolve itself sooner than later. Now that could change, but in our view, the most possible probable scenario is that supply shortages will create winners and losers, not a bear market. Well, thank you very much for listening. I hope uh, this has been helpful. We'll be back uh, next week, live and in radio color, uh, at 9 on Saturday. And again, as always, I thank you very much for listening. This is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group, and you've been listening to Money Management. Opinions, forecasts, and case studies are for illustrative purposes only and may only be relevant at the time of recording. Certain sectors in the market, such as international and emerging markets, certain fixed income, including high-yield bonds, precious metals, mid- and small-company securities, have greater risks that are generally outlined in their prospectus, contract, or offering document. Any guarantees or protections offered through insurance products are subject to the claims paying ability of the issuing insurance company. Diversification, asset allocation are no guarantees or protections against loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future results and there is always risk associated with investment.